You're listening to the Banner Church Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. For more information, visit us online at thebannerchurch.com. See you guys this morning. Really a lot of good things going on. Like my wife said, I... uh Man, I was just pumped Thursday night. It was a blast. If you're here from uh, over there on 68, the neighborhood that we that we love on weekly or you're watching online, I just want to say welcome. We're so thankful you're here, and our heart is really for you because uh, this is this is our neighborhood and our city and every street we just love on and are so thankful for. So, I'm man, I'm just excited for what God's doing. Amen? Uh, something I want to share because we've been doing a lot of really cool things, but we kind of, it's kind of sneaking up on us, is on December 12th, we're going to have our really big toy outreach over at Tonale Elementary School. Last year, last year we gave away around 500 toys, and this year I think we're going to give away around 800 toys. We've talked with the school, there's a lot of need, all kinds of stuff. Um, but can I tell you, we need more toys, right? There's literally two more weeks until this thing happens. Isn't that crazy? All you Christmas light haters, you're about to be out of time. It's happening now. Uh, so it, it gets here fast. That's why I like to talk about it early because you're like, wait, it's already? Yep, it's already almost here. Um, but we, we need more toys. There's a couple ways you can get involved. One is you can uh, bring toys here to the building on Sunday, drop them off at the table in the back. Two is that you can give online at banner.church/give and designate for uh, our Christmas outreach for toys. And we'll collect all that and go purchase toys. Now, I would like to say if you can physically bring bring toys, please do that. Because um, I love the generosity, especially those who are unable to make it here. That's one of the reasons we're able to give away so many toys, is we have some great people joining us on our online campus who donate very heavily towards making this happen. Uh, but I want to say, if you can buy toys, please do, so that my wife and, and I and my team don't have to go buy like, you know, 400 toys from Walmart three days before. Because it's also the Christmas season, I don't know if you guys noticed that. And uh, we get a lot of looks emptying the shelves uh, at a Target. And so I would prefer <laughs> to uh, not do that. Uh, so, yeah. And the third way is that you can volunteer to sign up, either on the Church Center app or online. Um, and, and find the info. If you want to find info about the event, just go to banner.church slash free toys. Super easy. You're like, I got a friend who, who, has, who has kids and they're struggling to make it this year. Man, bring them. Have them come. Doesn't matter. They're from North Phoenix. Can they come? Yeah, do they have kids? Yep. Do the kids want toys? Yep. Okay, then tell them they can come. Really easy. So, um, but man, it's going to be an awesome event. But we're going to be wrapping up this week and next week our Angels and Demons series. And I hope you guys have enjoyed it. I don't know if you guys have, but it's been, I've had fun. I don't know about you guys. Have you had fun? So we're going to wrap it up. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> uh, I've had a good time. I told my wife, I think I'm done researching demons for at least a month or two. <laughs> Not that I don't love it, but man, it makes the week a scotch heavy. Um, but I've enjoyed it. We're going to talk today a little bit about spiritual warfare as we approach the end. And next week, we're going to talk about Gabriel. We're going to head into Christmas season. It's going to be awesome. So would you pray with me this morning as we begin? God, we give you this service this morning. I thank you for your word that it is alive and active. And I pray that as we hear your word today, that we wouldn't just hear it, that it wouldn't just reflect off us, but that we would absorb it and it would transform us. God, we're here not for information, but transformation. So work through us in your word, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Hey, how many of you are puzzle people? You like to do puzzles. Good. How many of you have started more puzzles in your life than you finished? Come on. Come on. You know who you are. 
you know who you are. We, we are the same. Hi, I'm Josh, and I'm terrible at puzzles, right? Okay, I like the idea of puzzles, but I, if, if you're like me, the, you run into a couple problems. One, if you're a puzzle person, you very likely do not have small children, right? Because small children do not understand that there is this colorful, eclectic array somewhere that they can touch none of, right? Second is, uh, you might be like me, and you just don't have the time to do a puzzle. Hey, I don't like to sit a lot. Like, the service is a lot for me, sitting. It's like, yeah, what I'm going to do is, like, sit here and put together, like, a picture of, like, a nunnery or, like, an ancient garden. I don't know whatever puzzles are. My wife and I, we got this puzzle, and it was a Star Wars puzzle. And I thought, well, it's Star Wars, so I'll be motivated to do it. But what I, what I realized is that's not true at all. One problem we had is that we got a piece of cardboard, because I didn't want to do it on the table. I have toddlers, and Henry would eat, like, half the pieces. So I'm like, let's put it on a piece of cardboard. And then when it's time to put it away, we can go through the door. Problem. I did not measure the cardboard. <laughs> so my house built in the 70s, the doors aren't super big. And so we have to kind of like tilt it. But have you ever tried to tilt a free-flowing puzzle? Oh, my gosh. It's like your life flashing before your eyes. It's like I'm trying to tilt this thing, wedge it through. We're both trying to hold up the pieces, make sure none of them falls. Every time you bring it out, another piece is missing. Like we're going to put it together, and Darth Vader is going to have like half his face missing, but not like the normal way, right? <laughs> and so, <laughs> and so I, I, I'm not a big puzzle person. One of my problems with puzzles is that I'm a big picture person. And so looking at the small piece, I'm like... <sighs> You know, you have the box, but the box is only this big. The puzzle would take up this whole room and still fit in a box, six by six. And so you're looking at this, like, tiny picture, like, what is this blue blob? This is either Yoda's ear or is this Captain America's shield? What puzzle is this, right? You're, like, halfway through, totally unsure what you're doing. I'm looking at the whole thing. And by the end of our puzzling experience, I don't know, six months, we had, like, Han Solo's blaster, half of Chewbacca's arm, and we just jammed enough in to make it, like, a speeder or something. And I thought, no, we're not puzzle people. Get rid of this immediately. <laughs> I think sometimes that when we're looking at something really complex and we focus on the individual pieces, we do this sometimes even in life. We're so focused on the individual things, it's kind of hard to see the big picture. We kind of start losing focus. And so I, even in studying angels and demons, I have this really great software, and I'm in it and in the commentaries and in the info, and I get, like, so down in that sometimes I realize that I'm not seeing the entire big picture. And so this week, I really felt like God was calling me to kind of step back and look at the totality of what he has done in creation and see all that he has done and be like, wow, from the beginning, there has been an amazing plan and purpose through Jesus Christ. We call this the scarlet thread. This is the line that runs from the beginning of time all the way to Jesus' return, all the way to Jesus' second coming, right? This is the scarlet thread of Jesus Christ that runs throughout everything. And so when we talk about spiritual warfare or spiritual battle, we have to understand it in context, not as just this isolated thing or not just in the hyper details of Nephilim. I don't know if you guys enjoyed that last week. It took me a lot of work to write it, so I hope, it, hope you enjoyed it. Um, <laughs> but not just in the intimate details of, you know, unique things in the spiritual realm, but in a broader sense of what God has been trying to do for you and for I since the beginning of time. So today we're going to talk about spiritual warfare. Someone say warfare. Warfare. 
What's amazing as we look at this whole picture, you're going to see is that Jesus Christ has worked from the beginning, God has worked from the beginning to restore the rebellious hearts of man to unity with him. And what's amazing is no matter what you are fighting today or walking through today, whether you understand if it's physical or spiritual, no matter what you're facing, God brings victory through his son, Jesus Christ, and power and hope. And so my message today, there might be some terms I use or things that your mind starts to associate depending on maybe your past or your understanding, or maybe it even triggers you a little bit if you grew up in a context that used these terms in an unhealthy way. Whatever it might be, hear me today. This is a message of hope. This is a message of hope today. So I want to read you a scripture. Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. You ready? Oh, okay. Yes. Thank you, David. Are you ready? Okay. All right. Genesis 1, verse 28 says this. And God bless them, meaning man. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Okay, I know this might sound crazy, but for us to really grasp the spiritual warfare of where we are today, we have to go all the way back. Well, it's helpful to go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, all the way back to the beginning. If you remember from our other series, I drew the spiritual and the earthly realm in two circles that intersected in the middle. How many of you have ever seen a Venn diagram? Right? Right? Like a Venn diagram would be like duck, beaver, platypus. You know what I'm talking about, right? Eden is the platypus between the spiritual and the earthly. You're like, oh, that's so dumb, but you're going to remember it. Eden is the platypus. I don't know who, who's doing social media now. I don't know, whoever that is, platypus. Um, <laughs> so we drew the spiritual and the earthly and talked about how Eden was this uh, middle ground. It, not middle ground, but it was this cross-section where the spiritual and the earthly, the natural met. It was a beautiful place in the garden. And so we see God in that scripture I just read to you. God takes man, creates him, places him in the garden, Adam and Eve, and gives them a command. He says three things, rule multiply and fill the earth. And if you've been with us in the series, you uh, know, but if not, let me tell you, um, there were certain angelic beings that did not like that plan at all. One of them being Satan. So the very first demonic rebellion, Satan goes, wait a second, I'm sorry, I am beautiful and made of jewels, and you pick these dirt creatures to rule the earth? That's going to be a hard no from me. And so Satan comes, and he deceives Eve and deceives Adam in the garden to create a separation because he wants to be the ruler of the world. He oversteps his spiritual authority. This is going to be a common theme. He oversteps his spiritual limitations, and God at the very beginning says, listen, they are cast out of the garden because of sin, but I'm going to place enmity between you and the woman, and from her is going to come a child who you will strike, for he will crush you. Promise from the very beginning. Did you know that Jesus was the plan since the beginning of Genesis? It says, you've done something rebellious, but I'm going to send you redemption. So there was this rebellion against the rule. The second thing he told them is to multiply. 
There were angelic beings, but the angelic beings weren't given the call to multiply, just man. The angelic beings are like, wait a second, we are mad beautiful and soup's powerful, and yet you've told these dirt people that they're going to multiply and fill the earth? But like not, no, no, hard pass. And so what do they do? The second demonic rebellion. We talked about that last week, the Nephilim. It says, the sons of God came to the earth and took the daughters of man, human women, as wives and had children. You're like, sons of God. You're like, I was not here last week, and then my friend brought me. You didn't tell me Jesus had brothers. No. <laughs> so sons of God is the descriptive term for the host of heaven. These are the divine council. These are angelic beings. When it's saying sons of God, angelic supernatural beings came down and rebelled against God. God told man to multiply. Angelic beings said, no, no, no. We're taking power. And so they made basically giants. And if you go throughout Scripture, uh, not only before the flood, but after the flood in the promised land, you see these demonic strongholds through demon demonic powers. And God sends the people of Israel to remove these demonic strongholds. Still with me? So that's two. And I hope we're kind of starting to see these rebellions, these things that happen in Scripture, they are all connected. The more that you evaluate Scripture, the more you will see it weaving together, not tearing apart. Challenge. It's beautiful. It's amazing. It's supernatural. So, rule, multiply. Well, I told him another thing. He says, I want you to fill the earth, go out into all the earth. But there is a third demonic rebellion, and that is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. Someone say Babel. I like that word, Babel. The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel is this really profound moment that is a third demonic rebellion. First the fall, second the Nephilim, third the Tower of Babel. So I want to read that together. If you brought your Bible, open up to Genesis chapter 10. And uh, sometimes when we read Scripture, we read over this list of names, we're like, what does this mean? Right? What, why am I reading all these names? They don't mean anything. So I know this is going to be a list of names, but I want to explain to you why it has power and meaning. Can we do that? So I'm going to read you this list here in Genesis chapter 10. And some of these names you're going to pick up on and be like, that sounds familiar. And some of them, some of them I'm not even going to try to pronounce at all. So here we go. Genesis chapter 10, verse 8. says this. Okay. These are the sons of Ham. Great name for your kid. Next person who has a baby in Banner Church has to name them Ham. Um, <laughs> or pork chop. Um, so these are the sons of Ham. Ham is the son of Noah. So this is post-flood. Post-flood after the flood, okay? Uh, Noah's son Ham, they go out. Noah's son Ham starts having ham chops around or whatever. Um, ham hocks, whatever. Little kids, little hams, mini hams. Lunchables. So here's what happens. Genesis 10, 8. <laughs> it says, Cush, who is the son of Ham, another great name for a kid, fathered Nimrod, another great name for your child. <laughs> Cush, Nimrod. Okay, let's look at Nimrod. It says, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. That word there, I want to pause. That word there is Sem. That word there is Sem. Everybody say Sem. Sem. There you go. The word there is Sem. Keep that in your mind. The word Sem. He was a mighty man. Therefore, it said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. And this doesn't mean it's like worship before the Lord. It means like in, in front of him, as in Satan came before the Lord. Okay. 
says, the beginning of his, meaning Nimrod, great name, was Babel. Someone say Babel. Babel. Okay, we got that in our mind. Eric and Akkad and Kauna and the land of Shinar. So in the land of Shinar, Nimrod builds his kingdom with Babel, Eric, Akkad, and Kauna. It says, from that land, he went into Assyria. You might notice that name. And built Nineveh. You guys might have noticed that if you had the felt board, but Jonah went to Nineveh. Uh, Reboth, Ir, Kala, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kala, that is the great city. Then it says, then Egypt fathered Lidim. Egypt, that sounds like a familiar name, right? Father Lidim, Animim, Lehabim, Neftuhim, Pathrasim. Anyways, from whom the Philistines came. You guys remember the Philistines, right? Descendants, they had giants, they fought the Israelites, Goliath was with them. Okay, you're like, why do these names matter at all? This is ridiculous. These are the parts I skip. No, it's important. Nimrod says it was the first, he was the first on earth to be a mighty man. The word there is Sem. This is the same word that in Genesis 6, 4, if you remember last week, Genesis 6, 4, it says, and the Nephilim were on the earth in those days. These were the great, mighty men of renown. That word is Sem. So it says, Nimrod was the first Sem since the flood. Why? Because all the other Sem died because they drowned, right? So he is now the first Sem. He is now the first, presumably, spawn of this demonic rebellion because Scripture tells us in 6-4 it happened, and then it happened again. So this would be the again. It says he is the Sem. And what we know from both Jewish tradition and a lot of historical tradi tradition is that Nimrod is one of the forefathers of Babylon, Babylon. So he is not just a physical being, but he is a spiritually influenced being who starts a kingdom that is not just physical, but is also spiritual. Right? How many of you guys have ever heard the term Babylon before? Like, okay, I've heard this term in some context. It, it is an ancient kingdom, one of the great ancient kingdoms in the world, and it's in this region. It is also profoundly, profoundly powerful and ends up taking over uh, the kingdom of Israel. But Babylon is more than just a place, right? It is profoundly physical, but also profoundly spiritual. Are you with me? Babylon is this biblical image for the combined human and spiritual rebellion. When you see Babylon, sometimes it's literally the place of Babylon, but often it's, it's a term for the spiritual and uh, physical rebellion of man and the spiritual realm. It is deeply spiritual, deeply physical, but it is the embodiment of man's rebellion and demonic rebellion. Still with me. So Nimrod starts... Babylon. Babylon famously founded by the offspring of demonic rebellion and worships demons. And so the Tower of Babel is this profound moment where this demonic stronghold on earth begins. The Tower of Babel. Nimrod, demonically influenced, starts to build something under demonic authority. Let's read together. Genesis 11. Let's go down. If you still got your Bible, if not, the words will be on the screen. Genesis 11.1 1 says, The whole earth had one language and the same words. 
And as the people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. Who are we told is leading in Shinar? That's in Nimrod, right? In Shinar, he's building these cities. I know it's pots and pans part of the Bible, but stay with me. It says that they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, this is so important, verse 4, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed. Okay, stop there. Let us make a name for ourselves. The word there is, let us give us, um, let us become men of renown. What is that men of renown word? It's Sem. What is the word for Nimrod in that unity of demonic power and physical power? Sem. The Nephilim, when it's the demonic rebellion, what is the word for of renown, to be of renown of the men of renown? It's Sem. It's the same word. What they're saying here is, come, let's gather under the authority of this person of demonic power and bring ourselves in union and under the authority of demonic power. That's what it's saying in Hebrew, right? For us, it's like, let's build a tower, and God doesn't like tall things, right? No. They're saying, let's come under demonic authority, put ourselves in demonic union, and not only that, let's build a tower. Okay, that's interesting. Let's, let's build a tower. Let's build our own kingdom. Literally, when it says we want to be of renown, we want to, lest we be forgotten, what they're trying to say here is, let's become the name above all other names, the name above all names. That sounds like somebody else I know. Jesus. And Jesus is like, but no. <laughs> That's my thing. I am the name above all names. This is rebellion. And so it says in verse 5, it says, And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down. Who is he talking to? He's talking to the angelic council, the divine council that's still in heaven, because God loves to minister with others. That's why he made us. God's relational, which is pretty cool. But that's a side note. He says, let us go down and confuse their language or their tongues so that they may not understand one another's speech. Verse 8, so the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. It says it's called Babel because the Lord confused them, right? He made them Babel, which is kind of how we get our modern interpretation of that word. They said, let us make a tower with its tops in the heavens. Why is that? I joked, you know, just God just not like tall things. Like if you live on the 20th floor, you need to go home and repent right now because you're in a front to God. No, <laughs> right? It's like God's going to bring down the tall place. This is not what this means. If you remember our Venn diagram here, the platypus, a.k.a. Eden, that lives here, what was it? It was a high mountain. It was a high place. It was symbolic of where God met with man. And in all of ancient Near East culture, mountains and high places are where gods lived. And so when they're building this place in Babylon, it's not just physical, it's spiritual. They're saying, let's build a high place. Babel in Akkadian does not mean confused. Babel, they called it Babel because God confused. But the name Babel actually means, it doesn't mean confusion. It doesn't mean um, to, to Babylon. It means the gate of God. 
They didn't call it the gate of God because God confused them. They called it because God came down, which would have been a profound moment, right? (laughs) You're working with all your buddies, and all of a sudden half of them are speaking Cantonese, and the other half are speaking all I can think of is Mandarin Spanish. There we go. Uh, <laughs> right? The other, they're speaking all sorts of different languages and tongues. It's not physical. It's spiritual. Are you with me? It's not like they all learned a new language. It was a spiritual tongues they were speaking in this moment. God came down and confused them. Why? Because this was a rebellion. They're trying to rebuild this Eden here. All through Babylon, you can go through their culture and you'll see these pyramid-style structures that they would build as these kind of mountain resemblances of which they would do sacrifices in the top as if to besiege heaven with spiritual authority. They were trying to besiege. Yes, what was Babylon famous for? Gardens. What were they trying to do? They're trying to replicate what they had been cast out of because of rebellion. They're saying, we're coming after that and that authority and that power. Was this a spiritual rebellion against God, a physical rebellion, or both? Both. Okay, say a little comment. Both. Both. There we go. Thank you, Gino. Like, both. (laughs) Both. Both. So it says, God comes down and scatters them. It says he scatters the people. But something profound happens here in Deuteronomy 32. The writer's looking back and reflecting on it. And I'm going to skip all the way for our slides person to verse 8, where it says, When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion in his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. Your NIV might say the sons of Israel. That's not... Not quite landing it as it's intended here. You know, Yahweh Israel, or the the people of Israel in this moment. He's literally saying the sons of God in the sense of this divine council, right, that, that was fallen. He apportions the nations according to the fallen sons of God. The NLT might say, if you have that translation, same, same word, just depends on if they're going more word for word or thought for thought, but same translation. There's not translation issues. It's just you're going from an ancient Hebrew into English. Good luck, right? <laughs> Take some work. Um, in NLT, it says, according to the numbers of the heavenly court. See, when man is scattered, so are the rebellious angels. So are the demonic powers. And it says every nation is under the demonic power and authority except for the nation that submits to the Most High God. It's very clear. Every nation is under demonic power and authority except for the people of Jacob. And so if you think of this tall tower that gets destroyed and then scattered out, if you were to look on a map and begin to see, there would be, there'd be resting upon each nation demonic power and authority, that it's not just he who sits on the physical throne that rules, but he who sits on the spiritual throne that rules. Are you still with me? Probably one of the most clear examples of this I've ever heard given is in Egypt, right? The people of Israel. A promised people. They go to Egypt to get food. A couple hundred years later, they're slaves there. And the people of Egypt are crying out, and so God sends Moses to deliver them. Why? Because it says that Pharaoh and the gods are persecuting Israel. How could the gods persecute Israel if they're not real? Right? It's interesting. When, When Moses comes and he throws his staff down, and it turns into a snake, 
Everybody else is not like, oh, snap, let's let them go. What do they say? They're like, nope, papow, snakes. That's kind of a big deal, right? If you show up somewhere and God gives you the power to make snakes and the other person makes snakes, be surprised, right? Something is happening. We're like, oh, yeah, well, you know, of course, because they're getting to the final battle. It's like, yeah, but also they made snakes, guys. Like, yeah, but it was an illusion or it was demonic power. See, this is not confirming their mythology, but I'm confirming to you that there was spiritual authority in Egypt through demonic power. They, they, had, they were trying to surmise the demonic power that was overtaking Egypt and ruled in Egypt. So what did they use? Serpent guardians as signs of guarding the throne room. Well, what do we know from Scripture that the fallen angels were like that stood before? That word ser um, seraphim means serpent guardian, right? They were ruled by demonic power and authority, which is why in Exodus 12, God says, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all gods of Egypt I will execute judgments, I am the Lord. If they're not real, why would you have to bring God, or judgment against them? To clarify, they're not really gods. They just think they are. Right? You with me? They are demonic powers and authorities. The writers of the Old Testament so clearly understood that over nations and the persecution of the children of God were demonic powers. They did not just see physical, they saw spiritual. And so when God frees his people from slavery, he leads them out under, from under the oppression of these demonic powers that are killing their children. We're going to see that's a pretty common theme. Where you find the murder of children and innocence, you always find demonic powers fight me. You cannot convince me scripturally that that's not a thing. Mostly because I've spent three and a half months researching it. So in four months, you can come talk to me. <laughs> but where there is demonic authority, there is the murder of children. So God frees his people from slavery. He leads them out to the desert to lead them to the promised land. And he makes a covenant with his people. He makes another covenant. He restores them, renews the covenant like with Abraham. And he gives them the Ten Commandments. You know, when the really big bearded guy comes down with the stone tablets. You guys might have seen that like on, I don't know, TV or something. And he's got the stone tablets and he comes out. That's Moses. And he's bringing the Ten Commandments. And the Ten Commandments, the very first says, you're not going to serve any other gods but me. You're not going to make idols. You're not going to worship anyone else. You're not going to make anything out of gold or silver. You are going to serve God and God alone because that's who your salvation is through. But if you could guess, what do you think Israel does basically immediately following this? Makes an idol. <laughs> like, immediately following. Those of you who have children, you'll find this funny. Moses comes down the first time from the mountain, and he sees them worshiping a golden calf. Could you imagine the shock? Like, you go up, you're like, I'm going to meet with the Lord. I'm going to this worship conference. I'm going to have an encounter. And you come home, and your children have made some, like, brazen idol. You're like, well, I'm never hiring that babysitter again, right? <laughs> he comes back, and he sees Aaron. Like, Aaron's near, near a fire, and he's like, oh, hey, what's up, cuz? Like, good to see you, man. We kind of thought you were, like, dead. <laughs> and he's like, he, Moses is like, what happened? And I, I kid you not, Moses says, or Aaron says, I don't know. We threw all of our gold into a fire, and out came this golden calf. 
That is the most childish response ever. I have no idea who fashioned this bronze and golden calf. Probably fell out of the fire. Some of you have kids with those excuses. You're like, who broke this? I don't know. I watched you do it. Well, I don't know, right? I know I literally saw you. It can't happen by itself. Well, I don't know. Who overdrafted your debit card? I don't know. China, right? <laughs> right? You know what I'm talking about. I was an only child. I couldn't get away with any of that. Who did this? The devil. <laughs> I was very spiritual at a young age. Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I wasn't here. No, you're our only child. We know you're here. We picked you up and brought you here. I don't know. Probably, probably one of my friends. I blamed one of my friends one time, no joke, who was in another country at the time. <laughs> that's, that's how on it I was at uh, getting away with things. <laughs> They're like, mm, not sure. <laughs> so he comes out and he sees this, and you're like, why is he? He's furious. He's furious. They've made a gold. I just said don't worship anything, and immediately they make a golden calf. Why is this such a problem? Because it's a problem we've had since the beginning of mankind. We don't want a God that is. We want a God that we can manage. That's when Israel fights it, right? They don't want a God that is. They don't want a God that's omniscient. They don't want a God that's omnipresent. They don't want a God that's all-powerful. They want a God that they can manage. They want a God that they can submit to on their terms. And if you want a God you can submit to on your terms, then you have to make him yourself. Because the God that is comes with preset requirements and understandings of his power and authority that you can't change. If you want a weekend God, then just go build your own. Because he's not it for you. If you want a God that frees you, restores you, redeems you, if you want a God that will bring you complete freedom out of complete darkness, if you want a God that will bring you hope for your future and healing for your past, I know a God for you. If you want a God that will let you slither on in slavery forever, dancing in your chains, then you're just going to have to go make him yourself. But they don't want that. So they begin to worship things. They begin to worship money and riches and sex and power. But those are not just physical things. When God sends the prophets to speak to the people of Israel, when they've gone so far away from that covenant that he made, they begin to speak to these things, but they don't speak to the gold. They speak to the power. They don't speak to the war and the military might. They speak to the ruler that sits behind it, who's motivating it, because they understand that there is more than something physical happening. There's more than physical. If you were with us when we talked about Satan, uh, we read a lot of scriptures from Ezekiel and Isaiah that were written to the king of Tyre and the king of Babylon. And you're probably like, hey, pastor, uh, I don't think, I think this is written to this dude because it says literally his name and uh, not Satan. But then maybe you were confused and we went a little farther and it was like, oh, day star, you've been cast out of heaven. And you're like, wait a second, what is happening? I want to explain. The ancient Near East writers had a deep understanding because their culture had a deep understanding that ruling was not just about physical authority, but about spiritual authority. And they didn't just look at the seat. They looked at the throne and who was sitting on it. And so they would speak things like in Ezekiel, Ezekiel 28, when speaking of Satan, it says, prophesy, speak to the king of Tyre, the prince of Tyre. In Isaiah 14, 3, one of this powerful uh, testimony, all of Isaiah 14 is, but just the intro, here's what it says. It says, when the Lord has given you rest from your pain and turmoil and the hard service with which you were made to serve, he's talking to Israel, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. Okay, 
He's talking to the king of Babylon. Well, the word king there, the Semitic word for king, Semitic meaning people, the Semitic areas, which the Hebrews are a part. The Semitic word is Molech. Now, they don't have vowels, so it's just, it would look like ML, some kind of K figure in ours, but we would say it Molech or Melech. The word there is Melech. Melech comes from the word ruler or king. In fact, when Isaiah is prophesying to the ruler of Babylon, he's not prophesying to the king of Babylon. He's prophesying to the Molech of Babylon. Why, why does that matter? Because Molech is not the physical king. Other words that you'll hear them prophesy to, Adon, that means Lord. One that you might notice if, if you went to Bible school or, you know, uh, um, what is that? Sunday school. You might notice this one, Baal. Baal is just a Semitic word for master. So these words that you'll hear through Scripture, all throughout Scripture, when you read the Old Testament, you hear them bowing down to Baal and making idols to Baal. You hear them bowing down to Molech and to Adon and to Asher and all these things, right? Making idols to these people. These are names for supernatural spiritual authority. These are demons. These are Satan. When you hear someone say they're worshiping Molech, they're worshiping Satan. All throughout the land, they were worshiping Molech and Baal. Are you with me? Over these nations, the king of Tyre, when it's speaking to the king, they would call themselves the big man. Kings would call themselves the big man. They would, they would be not only spiritual or physically large, they would be spiritually large. They would have ceremonies where they would come under the authority, even have uh, adapted and creepy and terrifying sexual rituals to try to produce demonically possessed and imbued offspring. It was evil. Are you with me? Evil. Evil. And it's not like evil took a break because you're now postmodern, Right? Okay, you're still with me? We're like, yeah, but we're not like that anymore. You didn't watch anything I've watched for the past two months then. There was evil happening there. Molech, Baal. It's literally to worship Satan and demons. Let me give you a visual uh, uh, of what Molech would look like when they'd worship. It's going to make you understand the desert a little more. Molech was portrayed as a large golden bull. This is where we get the horns of the devil, right? A large golden bull. This is why it was a big deal when Moses comes off the mountain and sees them making a golden calf. You're like, really? I mean, yeah, it's like a bull. It's like, what does that mean? Here's why it's a big deal. Because what sacrifice Molech accepted in the ancient world was children. Often they would make a statue. They would cut out a spot. They would put the child inside. They would light a fire underneath it, and they would burn the child alive. And so when Moses comes down from the mountain, he does not see just some calf. He sees an abomination rebellion against God. Remember what I said? Every nation that has ever sacrificed children, has ever destroyed innocents, has been completely wiped away. Completely wiped away. There is no gray area. Jesus says, it, it would be better if you tied a millstone. Can we just be honest here, believers, for a second? Non-believers, you're like, wow, this church is intense. Just on this, I'm so intense. It would be better for you to tie a millstone, a rock around your neck, and hurl yourself in the sea and drown yourself than to harm an innocent child. According to Josh, no, according to Jesus Christ. You're like, well, I don't know. Good, let me tell you. From the beginning, God has been destroying and wiping out people because the harming of innocence in any form is demonic. Any form. Okay. 
I feel like that needs to be said. You're like, well, I'm not sure. That's okay. I'm okay with you wrestling with Scripture. It's going to make you better. It's going to make all of us better. It's going to make me better. Wrestle with it. Fight with it. That's okay. It will win. If not now, <laughs> eventually. Powerful moments. When Moses comes down and he sees them worshiping Moloch, he's like, what? What are you doing, right? Because it's not that Moloch just wants them to sacrifice children. It's that there is a tension between the children following God or rebellious demonic powers. That is the tension. I will follow God or I will follow Babylon. Who's the king of Babylon? Moloch. What is Moloch? Satan. There is a choice. I will follow God or I will follow Satan. Literally, in Leviticus, he says, you shall not give any of your children to offer them to Molech, and so profane the name of your Lord your God. I am your Lord. This is why they're told not to marry into these religions. Is it just because they were super bigoted? No. It's because God's loving, and he does not want demonic authority over his children. Could you imagine? Could you imagine if you came home and you saw your child worshiping the devil? right? You might be shocked. You're like, well, I'm just super open-minded. You're not that open-minded, I promise you. <laughs> right? Made some bronze image and your cat has disappeared. You're not going to be that understanding. You're going to be shocked. The same thing is true with God because God understands the spiritual ramifications. I'm joking about it in this sense because it is a little heavy, but hear me say that from the beginning of time, people have worshipped Moloch and they still do. There's evidence of it in the ancient Near East, in Babylon, in Persia, in Carthage, in Rome, in uh, Central Europe, even today in America. There are organizations that sacrifice effigies of children to Moloch. But like, it's not a big deal, guys. Right? I mean, only weird people believe in this stuff. Right? That's just for conspiracy theorists, guys. That's just for whatever, what's that called? C canon? QAnon? That's just for the crazies. That's not for us, guys. Guys, we're smart. We're postmodern. We're, post we're educated, guys. We don't need... Baloney! Baloney! Who's going to call BS on this except for me right now? BS. <laughs> right? I didn't say this in the first service, so we can delete this. But, <laughs> but we need to be real here, church. Can we just be real for a second? From the beginning of time, it's not like, it's not like Molech got to Nietzsche and was like, well, my work here is done. <laughs> right? It's not like, oh, oh man, the postmodern man that understands, whoo, I don't need help there. Look around. I need to say this. There, there is no neutral in spiritual warfare. There is no such thing as a spiritual Switzerland. You're, there's a decision. It is Molech. If that makes you feel better than saying Satan, fine, say it. There is Satan or there is Christ. There is authority under Satan and under his rule and the ruler of this world or through Christ. There is slavery. There is, in, there is, there is indebtedness to pain and suffering. There is constant hurt and sorrow. There is child sacrifice. There is harming of innocence. There is complete foolishness or there is freedom, hope, new life, and restoration. That's it. There's no middle ground. You can't worship Moloch on Tuesday and God on Sunday. That's not how it works. He says, do not let anything of your life or your children pass over into Moloch. That's kind of a big deal. Israel, they're set free from slavery to literally immediately go back into spiritual slavery. Like, they can't escape it. The, the hold of these demonic powers are so strong over them. They chose to serve Satan rather than God. And that's a pretty consistent human progression. Spiritual rebellion, this is important. 
It's not on the slide, but I want you to hear me. Spiritual rebellion will turn into intellectual darkness and eventually lead to moral decline. Like, how do you know? The Bible tells me, and history has shown me. You can, you can argue with our resident historian, Jamin, about this, but he will roast you. <laughs> Trust me, I've heard him go off on it. Uh, <laughs> spiritual rebellion will always turn into intellectual darkness and eventually lead to moral decline. 1 Kings eleven seven. So Solomon, Solomon, the wisest man and all, like so rich, so wise, so hooked up, right? So wise, he did like the right move. He won the lottery and all he asked for was wisdom. Then he got everything else. So Solomon built a high place. They like those high places, huh, demons? For Chamash, the abomination of Moab. Chamash was the champion of Moab. Remember Moab, that was the nation with giants. He was a demonic giant champion figure that they worshiped. I'm going to say 90% a demon. It says, build a high place for Chamash, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites on the mountain of the east of Jerusalem. This is so important. Israel chose to come under the supernatural authority and dominion of Babylon before they physically came under its authority. This is the progression. Your heart will always serve Babylon before your army does. Your heart will always serve Babylon before, before your family does, before your life does, before your bank account does, before your attitude does, before your schedule does, before your eyes do, before your hands do. Your heart will always go first. Your heart leads the way. There's more than physical power at work here. They could see that. This is more than money. This is more than sex. This is more than just ritual. This is more than these. There's more happening here. There's demonic power and authority, and certain nations have certain demonic powers and authorities on them according to Scripture, which is like, can we just pause and say, that's kind of crazy, right? That's like, okay, what do we do with that information? <laughs> like, like, oh, yeah, China's out here with a demon on the throne. Like, okay, you're going to, like, go wild and start picking different nations based off of what you think? You might need to, like, reflect inward. <laughs> right, because there's different authorities or things going on. Daniel, when uh, the people of Israel are in literal, physically Babylon, are also in spiritual Babylon, and they're coming under attack. And Daniel prays this. Daniel 10, 13, he prays God, that God would send an angel. And it says that an angel, Gabriel, comes to him. And Daniel kind of looks at him like, hey, man, uh, where you been? You ever look at God like that when he shows up? Like, yeah, I thought you were, like, existent outside of time. You kind of took your time here, right? It's been a little while. I think, I think Gabriel could maybe tell Daniel was, like, freaking out. And so he says this to him. He says, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia. You ever read a scripture and you're like, I'm sorry, What? Angels fighting kings? No, the word prince here, the prince of Persia, prince means supernatural being, supernatural authority. There was a supernatural demonic authority over Persia. And he said, Michael, another angel, came to help me because I was stuck fighting the king. What's the word king there? Molech. I was fighting the devil, and I needed some backup because of spiritual authority. And so he says to him in 1020, do you no, I have come to you, but now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. When I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. I hope, 
I know this is really complicated, and I'm throwing a lot of stuff at you, but you need to hear me. There are spiritual authorities over nations, over rulers and powers and authorities, over this world and over strongholds and places all around the world. The things that we see as solely physical are not solely physical. Okay? They're not solely physical things. And this is important. The battle is not just flesh and blood. It's spiritual. The rebellion is not just flesh and blood. It's not like, I do bad things, so God doesn't love me. That's not what it's about. It's not solely physical. It's spiritual rebellion. It's spiritual warfare that's happening. And the enemy tries to get you to think it's just physical, but it's not. It's spiritual rebellion that's occurring which makes it even more powerful when Jesus rides into Jerusalem. Because Jerusalem has submitted itself to the kingdom and power of Molech and of Babylon. But when Jesus rides in, we know in Scripture that he comes to overcome the spiritual and physical rebellion, to restore the rebellious hearts of you and I. And when he goes to the cross, when he's crucified there, it's not just physical, it's spiritual. Tozer said, one of the great scholars said, Jesus was born of a virgin, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died on the cross, and rose from the grave to make worshipers out of rebels. I love that. I am a rebel turned worshiper. I don't know about you. Like just fully, fully rebellious. Of my own might, I'm just naturally in conflict with God by my own flesh. But through the sacrifice of his son, me, a rebel, a sinner, is turned into a worshiper. When Jesus goes to the cross, think about this. Think of the demonic authorities that were physically there at the crucifixion. Think about how many demons showed up to the murdering of Jesus. That was probably a heavy day. Because it's like, who's, what demon's taking that day off? Like, now I'm going to be on the other side of the world, I don't know, making someone's car not run. Obviously, they didn't have cars. <laughs> but they're there, and they're casting all of their hate and their evil and their violence and their vileness against Jesus Christ. And he takes it to the cross and he dies a death. He pays our debt. He takes the wrath that we should have taken for our sin and he takes it upon himself and he does something amazing. Colossians 2.13 I want to read this. It'll be on the screen. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set aside, nailing it to the cross. It says verse 15, he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over him, them and him. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. Rulers there is a supernatural, a spiritual term, and authorities is a physical term. Did Jesus' death, was that physical, spiritual, or both? When he rose in victory, was that a physical resurrection, a spiritual resurrection, or both? Come on if you believe. It was both. Does the resurrection that you have received and the conquering of your sin, is that just for physical emotions? Is that in a physical sense? Or is that spiritual? Or is it both? It's both. It is powerfully, powerfully 
both. These demonic powers that rebelled, that have caused rebellion from the beginning, that God has promised to restore through Jesus Christ, he defeated physically and spiritually. The rulers and the authorities, the things that hold in the spirit, the things that hold in the natural, the shame that comes against you from the enemy, the shame that's in the heart from our own sin and choices and consequences. He overcame all of it. And if we just see it as, well, this is spiritual and this is physical, we miss the power of what God tried to do for us. He didn't make us anew just physically. We don't baptize you because there's something special in the water. Trust me, I put this water in here. I'm going to promise you there's not. <laughs> it is spiritual and physical. It lives within you. It works together in unison. It is powerful and important that God has given you victory through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. What makes it powerful, too, is because it's spiritual, you can't earn it. Because you're not spiritual. You're physical. But you're only spiritual through God. Which means if you've been trying to earn salvation, um, just stop. Just stop. Like, I know I didn't go to small group this week. It's okay. Small groups are over. You're fine. <laughs> You don't have to keep striving. Stop striving. Because God has already given you the victory both physically and spiritually. What's interesting, though, is we're told in Scripture, He's won the victory, but there still are powers that exist in this world. We're told there's still a struggle. So the question is, okay, Jesus, you've won the victory. You are victorious. But what do I do with that information? It's like if I'm feeling tempted, does that mean I'm not walking in the victory, which means I'm not a good enough Christian? No. There is still a struggle. There are still demonic powers that rest upon physical things. And so God has given us tools and abilities and directions and disciplines and blessings with which we can fight spiritual warfare. So I want to give those to you real quick, but I'll, before we do, I want to read Ephesians 6.10. Probably the most powerful scripture that defines this whole series. We're going to read 10 through 18. It says this, Finally, be strong in the Lord in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. It says, therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication to the saints." Wow, big scripture. But guys, you know, it's just that easy. <laughs> they read scripture, people are like, just, you know, put on the armor of God. You're like, okay, belt of truth. Where do I get that? And it's like, we'll have belts of truth in the lobby, $35. Scripture, pick your, <laughs> no, <laughs> belts of truth. We'll get them and, you know, get them like, uh, let some leather working, some conchos on there. Uh, you'll be looking fine. Belt of truth. No, it's more. I want to describe, what is he talking about here? There's some elements of spiritual warfare that, that he's describing in this, and there's a couple. One is standing firm in the faith is spiritual warfare. What is spiritual warfare? Standing firm in the faith is spiritual warfare. 
says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. See, our faith is not in our might. The level of our faith, the, the, the amount of which we trust and believe in the Most High God and what He's spoken over us is not in our might, in our strength. It's not even in the identity that the world has given us. That's the hardest one to overcome, is the identity the world has spoken unto you. Because the strength of our faith is in who God has called us, created us to be, and redeemed and restored us to be. And constantly through His Word is reminding us our entire faith is built on the identity that he's given us, you are a child of God. 1 John 3, 1 says, see what kind of love the Father has given us, that we should be called children of God, and so we are. See, how we fight supernaturally, spiritual warfare here, is by constantly reaffirming that the promise that we are children of God. There is no lie of the enemy greater than the truth that you are a child of God. And yet the enemy will constantly come after your identity. You have to do this, be this, be about this. Oh, you'll never do this. You've done this. You're definitely not in, right? Constantly coming and attacking and attacking and attacking. But the truth and the beauty of the Word of God is that our identity is that we are children of God. Second thing, putting on Jesus' character is spiritual warfare. When our identity is secured in Him, that, that's the first part, we are able then to be conformed more to His image. See, the goal of demonic forces has always been to get you to sin because sin could probably most clearly be defined as that which runs completely counter to God's character and nature. And so if the, if the enemy can make you embody that which is counter to God's nature, that is also counter to your nature as someone created in his image. And so the goal is to create a separation, to keep you in shame, to keep you in isolation, to keep you in sin, to keep you separated. But God says, listen, I'm trying to constantly conform you, to, to transform you, to renew you, to being more like Christ, like I created you to be. This is why Jesus takes us all as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us there. Romans 8, 28 says, we know that for those who, got, who love God, all things will work together for good. For those that, who, are, who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many believers. Often misquoted uh, uh, chunk of scripture, so let me just clarify. God wants good things for you. Abundantly true. But the good thing he's talking about here is for you to constantly be grown and conformed and renewed by the goodness of God. To be more like Christ. So the enemy is constantly trying to get you to bow down to wooden idols, money idols, bank account idols, self idols, things you want. But when we seek to be more like Christ, we combat the forces of the enemy by putting on his character. Third thing, prayer and fasting is spiritual warfare. It says pray in all times in the spirit. When you pray and fast, you are partaking in a physical effort with profoundly deep spiritual ramifications. Is prayer physical or spiritual or both? It's both, right? It is a physical thing you're doing, but it's a spiritual thing that is happening. I remember uh, Jesus, when he encounters a demon-possessed child, the parents had brought the child to uh, the disciples, and the disciples couldn't cast the demon out. And so the parents bring it to Jesus, like, hey, we brought it to your disciples. I know you vouch for them, but um, didn't make it happen. And Jesus looks at his disciples, and he says in Mark 29, this kind 
cannot be driven out by anything but prayer and fasting. Saying this hold, this demonic hold in this child, this harming of the innocents. Remember Jesus, not a big fan of hurting children. He says this kind only through prayer, and your scripture might add fasting or not, depending on how it translates that term. Prayer is one of the greatest blessings we have. When we say pray for this nation, is that to get a physical response, a supernatural one, or both? It's both. We say pray for this nation. I'm not saying pray for your guy. Right? It's not like, I'm not saying pray for your person. I'm saying pray that what's happening in the spiritual and the physical will come into alignment with God's character, however he can make that happen. However, because your person's not the answer. God is the answer. You're like, no, I'm pretty sure. I just picked a new person. I think he's, nope, it's worthless. Trust me. <laughs> God is the answer. It matters when we do spiritual warfare. We need people transformed. We need a nation transformed. We need demonic powers broken over this city, over this nation, over our homes, and that comes through prayer and fasting. Okay, I got, I got two more. Worship man, you can come up because worship is spiritual warfare. Supernatural. <laughs> worship is spiritual warfare. Joshua 6, the battle of Jericho. God sends the people around with trumpets to go around the city and to worship before him. And the walls fall and they go in. Is that supernatural, physical, or both? Both. Second Chronicles 20, Jehoshaphat sends a worship leader to the front and the presence of God went before them and brought them victory before they even got there. Is that physical, spiritual, or both? In 2 Kings 3, Elisha asked for a harp to play. God's power came on him to prophesy. He begins to speak over the nation. They follow it, come into the freedom that comes to the Most High God, both economically, both physically, both in the sense of militarily, or whatever that word is. Is that spiritual, physical, or both? Both. 1 Samuel 16, David plays the harp, and it soothes the tormenting spirit in Saul. Is that act physical, spiritual, or both? Both. I've heard it said, your praise can break your chains if you don't let your chains break your praise. And this is true. Praise breaks chains. Praise releases people. We're like, no, man, singing doesn't do it. That's just physical. I don't feel like singing today. I'm like, duh, because there is constant demonic attack against you to not sing, to not declare truth. I'm not saying sing like me or sing like Gianna, sing like Katie. She's like, don't play me. I'm just saying declare, worship God, proclaim his name. It has supernatural power. It's a physical act. You're like, I come in, I don't feel like it. Yeah, in the physical. But there's more than physical. There's spiritual. Acts 16, 25. But midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake. So the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately, all the doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. They were released from prison. Physical, spiritual, or both? Both. If you were in prison right now, and you were singing to the Lord, you might feel kind of dumb. Like, no, what I need is a key. But hear me this morning. Worship is the key to the prison that you're in right now. Did you know you can worship your way out of addiction? Did you know that you can work your way? You can worship your way, not work your way. You can't work your way. <laughs> worship your way out of oppression, out of depression. If you're in a place 
of addiction, depression, depression. You're like, no, no, you can't. And I just want to encourage you today by saying, I have seen it not only in Scripture, but in the lives of believers. And though you might struggle to believe it today, I believe enough for both of us to say, yes, you can, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And in those moments, it's not just physical. It's spiritual. There is a supernatural, a spiritual power. Man, look around right now. Do you not see a spiritual authority, a demonic presence of dread that resides upon this nation? Can, can you see it? If you don't, say, Jesus, open my eyes. There's a, there's a spiritual demonic authority of dread that tries to reign over, that tries to make us live in this space of not trusting God and going, God, what's next? Something's going to happen. Something's going to happen. God's not real. If he was, this wouldn't happen. But man, I can just see every time we go out, the Spirit of God moving. And some days that just takes worshiping and speaking out truth that I'm like, it's hard to see, but I believe. Worship is spiritual warfare. The Word of God is spiritual warfare. This is the Word of God is spiritual warfare. It says, take the helmet of salvation, sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. John, it says, Jesus is the Word. The beginning was the Word, and the Word became flesh. But this is talking specifically about the statement of God, meaning His written Word, meaning the Bible, Scripture. But what's amazing is that Jesus is the embodiment of the living Word. He is the good news, and the good news is about Him. The Bible is physically, is physical and spiritual word of God. When Jesus was tempted by the devil, uh, if you went, if you grew up in uh, maybe uh, Sunday school, you might know this. But when he was tempted by the devil, he, uh, the devil used scripture to tempt Jesus. Isn't that crazy? What a bold move, right? That's like you going and like debating with like Tolkien about a book he wrote. Like, I'm pretty sure this is what you meant. He's like, well, no, I wrote it. I remember. I was there. And Jesus says the same thing. Oh, I'm pretty sure I was there. I know. But what's powerful is Jesus uses the word of God to repel the lies of the enemy. We need to become a biblically literate group of believers. If the devil knows the word of God, you should. If the devil has the word memorized, you should. If the devil speaks out the word of God, you probably should. Because if you're like, you know what, I haven't read the Bible in a while. Listen, I'm not talking about getting into heaven. I'm talking about winning the war here. And if you want to win more, more wars here, you got to use the sword better. It's time to sharpen the sword. It's time to get in the word. It's time to meditate on it. It's time to dwell on it. It's time to get in the presence of God and rest on it. It's time to commit it to your heart. Listen, I know you know every word to every Taylor Swift song, but guess what? That's not going to defeat the devil. It might just bring it. I'm feeling it today. Fight me about it. <laughs> we can talk about harming innocent children. But this is important. The enemy knows. Do you know? Read it. Meditate it. Can I tell you, when your kids drive you crazy, speak it over your kids. Like, <laughs> oh, Jesus wept. <laughs> but speak the truth of God. Listen, that you are not your own, but you are through Christ Jesus. I've been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but the life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If anyone is in Christ, he is, in a, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. 
right? Have you spoke that over yourself recently? God made him who had no sin to be sin so that through him I might become the righteousness of God. Speak it over your life. Satan says, you'll never be worth it. And you say, yeah, but scripture tells me and God tells me that I am. I defeat your lies by the power of the word. Finally, the spirit of God is spiritual warfare. This is my very last thing we're going to worship. The spirit of God is spiritual warfare. This is so cool. Okay, I'm going to nerd out here for a second. The Tower of Babel, it says God came down and confused their language. He confused their tongues spiritually. He confused them. God, Jesus ascends to heaven after dying for our sins. He ascends to heaven and he says, listen, go, to, go and wait because I'm going to send another. I'm going to send a helper. I'm going to send my spirit. And so they go to the upper room and they're praying. And it says, what descends upon them is tongues of fire. Like tongues of fire, the Holy Spirit descends. And they go out and they begin to preach in other languages. The same word there is the same word all the way back here in Babel. God said, listen, they're under demonic authority. They're not sharing the unity of me. They're not sharing the relationship with me scattered different tongues he restores it spiritually here in Pentecost and says listen now they're speaking tongues now they're proclaiming the truth of the gospel and, and I love that he's constantly pissing off demons he's like listen you meant to destroy I'm restoring through Jesus Christ it's poetic it's beautiful it's a little petty and it's awesome right <laughs> it's like I'm gonna use languages and tongues and I'm gonna speak out and I'm gonna declare people are like well they were speaking languages that's physical or they were speaking you know, different kind of babble that, that, that's spiritual. It's both. It's both. You're like, well, I don't know what I'm supposed to speak about speaking tongues. Is it physical? It's both, and it's according to Him, by His power, by His gifting, by His ways. You have been given the Holy Spirit. Think about this. No one has been more anointed since the beginning of time than the believers who have received the fullness of the Holy Spirit. You do not have more access or less access to God than Elijah or Moses. You got the Holy Spirit dwelling in what they had to go into the temple to find. You have right now, you have later, you have tomorrow, you have the next day, you have forever. The Holy Spirit. Can I tell you, you have everything it takes to win victories, but not physically, spiritually. The victory over the addiction and the greed and, and the division in your family, the, the, over the bitterness in your life, over the things that keep coming against you, the victory to win those spiritual battles that you see resting upon the throne. Not the, not the seat, but the throne. Not what's sitting there, but the throne behind it. That's through the power of the Holy Spirit. First John 4, 4 says, You are from God, and you have overcome them, for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. This is amazing. From the beginning of time, way back here, demonic power is like, yeah, man, we have destroyed this thing. We've destroyed its ability to rule. We've destroyed their ability to multiply. We've destroyed their ability to fill the earth. Man, God, this is, he's going to have to judge them now. All of a sudden, you go here at Pentecost. It's like restored, powerful, freedom, life, ministry, purpose, everything through Jesus Christ. By the power of the Holy Spirit, you have everything to win the victory of spiritual warfare in your life. This is why we say at Banner Church, our mission is so that all people can experience the freedom and the power of a new life in Jesus Christ. It's not just that you are free. You have been given power in your victory through Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. So today, I want to invite you. We're going to sing a song called Champion as we close. I invite you just to, to, to take that authority that God has given you and speak it over your life. 
And some of you, if you've never been filled with the Holy Spirit, you feel just poured out and empty, maybe you've neglected that relationship. Now's the moment where you just say, Holy Spirit, fill me, restore me, renew me, and prepare my heart and my mind for the spiritual warfare that's ahead of me. Would you stand with me this morning and let's pray together. Dear God, I thank you this morning. I thank you that you are with us and you are for us and that you are our champion, most high God, that you bring the victory, that you bring the authority. And so I pray right now, Holy Spirit, I pray that you right now by your power would renew, that you would restore, that you would lift up, that you would strengthen. And I pray as we fight these battles that we wouldn't just see them solely as physical, but we would see the supernatural implications in the name of Jesus, that we would see the supernatural causes and the demonic strongholds and that by the power of the Holy Spirit that we would abolish those through your strength right now. God, I pray as we worship right now in this place, God, I pray as we worship that you would begin to break away those chains and those things and begin to declare the truth of your word. God, we give this worship to you. We give it in this moment and I pray, Spirit, for those who are feeling empty, pour it out, fill us, renew us, and go before us in Jesus' name. Amen. Man, let's worship the Lord together.